Okay, a little bit of review here. What are the three chapter ones of the New Testament that you need to go to to see clearly the deity of Jesus Christ? John. John 1. Colossians 1. And Hebrews 1. Very good. Three chapter ones. Okay? 1, 1, 1. Uh, in each of those, I mean, they're not the only passages in the New Testament where you see the deity of Christ, obviously, but you're going to get just a clear explanation. And I love that they're chapter ones because what will happen sometimes whenever you're talking to somebody uh, who's trying to convince them of biblical truth, if that person is a religious person, he or she will say, well, you got, but you got to look at the context, and then they'll try to use context to reverse the meaning of what it says, and they don't even know what the context is most of the time, okay? But with John 1, 1, it's the very beginning of the book. So this is how he starts his letter here, his gospel. Hebrews 1, same thing. Colossians 1, we're still in chapter 1, but it's a little farther down into the passage. But John 1 and Hebrews 1, we're right from the very first verse talking about the deity of Christ. There's no conditioning here. They're just coming out of the gate swinging on that doctrine. Okay. Now, when it comes to Christ having both deity and humanity, you could actually use each one of these too. But I'm going to give you two chapter 2's. One of them we looked at last week that you just turned to, and that's Philippians chapter 2. And the other one that we'll look at today is Hebrews chapter 2. These are the passages you can go to to see the hypostatic union, what we call that term theologically, it just means the union of those two natures, the nature of deity and the nature of humanity joined in the one person of Jesus Christ. And so last week we looked at that first one, Philippians chapter 2, and I think we would do well to read that again. Would someone read Philippians 2, 3 through 8 for us? Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Who's got it? I got it. Okay. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceits, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right. So if you have your notes in front of you, page 19 there, <clears throat> under Philippians 2, 3 through 8. The two words that make all the difference in interpreting this passage are what two words? Form and empty. Form and empty. Very good. So how do you define form? He existed in the form of God and he took on the form of a bondservant. And how you define empty? Those are two very important terms and will make all the difference in what you walk away with from that passage doctrinally. Now form, we talked about last week, speaks of the real existence of something. So we see in, what is it, verse 7, he took the form of a bondservant. We know that he really was a servant. He was in human form as a servant walking the face of the earth. And so when we see form back in verse 6, he existed in the form of God. That's talking about real existence as God from eternity past. True deity and true humanity. And then there's that word emptied, verse 7, uh, which is... It causes a bit of a hang-up sometimes. How do you interpret emptied? Did he empty himself of deity? Well, we know that's not the case. There's way too much biblical evidence to say you know, he retained his deity. So you have to define that. And I shared with you some of these translations uh, that get to the idea of emptied. 
He made himself nothing, NIV. Made himself of no reputation, King James. He humbled himself, Philip's translation. They rightly express the idea of what is happening in the text as communicated by Paul. And in MacArthur and Mayhew's book, Biblical Doctrine, they said, His, Jesus's, was an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. If he actually surrendered or gave up his divine attributes, then it might suggest that he ceased to be God. But that would result in something at odds with how the Bible identifies him as being fully and truly God. And so uh, we see this emptying is really how Paul is expressing that he added true humanity to his nature. That if you look at the third blank under Philippians 2, the way we express this in this class was that Jesus was nullifying the expression or exercise of certain divine prerogatives. He gave up in his humanity certain things that he knew otherwise. He gave up certain glory. He existed in eternity past in the glory of God. He gave that up, didn't he? he? He wasn't existing in the glory of God in heaven when he was on earth being tormented, rejected by men. He gave up this glorified status that he had in heaven for a time to come to earth and suffer and die, to bleed. And to breathe his last, okay? So it's not that he gave up his attributes, but he gave up or he nullified the exercise or expression of certain divine prerogatives. And there's, you know, obviously a degree here that we just can't answer uh, exactly what that looks like. For example, was Jesus omnipresent whenever he took on flesh and he was born of Mary? Did he give up omnipresence, the exercise of that attribute in his flesh? Or was he still in heaven, too? The Bible just doesn't explain it the way that we would like it to, so that we can be really confident on that one, okay? And there's debate as to what his omnipresence looked like while he was in the flesh. Now we know, now, he retains his glorified body, he retains his humanity permanently, and he's omnipresent. I am with you always, even until the end of the age, where two or three are gathered, I am there in the midst of them. You get all these phrases, and so he's omnipresent, of course, in his current ministry, but did he give up the exercise of omnipresence during his first advent? Well, when you figure that out, send me the paper, the essay on it, and we'll all learn from you, okay? Because that's just, that's tough. You've got to wrestle with all that, okay? But it's clear that he gave up the exercise of certain divine prerogatives. And that's uh, what we walked away with from Philippians 2 last week. Any thoughts or questions on Philippians 2? Clear as day. Maybe, maybe not. Hey, you guys. Okay. Well, that's Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Let's see what else I got on the slide here before we go to Hebrews. Uh, this emptying was necessary for him to become a man. Flesh and blood do not exist in the realm of heaven, so he had to leave celestial glory and take on carnality. And it's important to also note that this humanity remained permanently. We talked through this last week. And Paul's making uh, an incredible theological statement. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has become a slave to the point of death, even death on the cross. And of course, the big picture is one that's ethical or moral, as John Frame points out. This emptying, that's the word kenosis, okay, the Greek word kenosis, 
The emptying of Philippians 2.7 can be understood perfectly well as the self-humbling of God's servant. That is, of course, Paul's point in the larger context. It's an ethical point, not a metaphysical one, primarily. Paul is telling them to behave differently. If you look at the start of verse 5 there in Philippians 2, this is Paul's big point. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You look at the big theological reality that Jesus existing eternally as God, humbled himself and took on flesh, that should affect your behavior if you're a Christian. That should impact the way you live. Because uh, I think I mentioned this in the sermon last week. If Jesus, who has all divine privilege and prerogative, nothing withheld from him as God, if he humbled himself to wash Judas' feet, what's below you, right? What's beneath you in this life when it comes to service and love and humility? The God of the universe became like a speck of dust, like we all are, and was washing the feet of his enemy, the one who would betray him. So, have this attitude among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's big point, right? Okay. Well, let's go to Hebrews 2. Turn forward in your New Testament toward the back to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 to 18. Here again, we're going to see the combining of a divine nature with a human nature. Hebrews 2, 9 through 18. Someone like to read those ten verses for us? I got it. Thank you, Nanny. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Wow, Hebrews is a pretty thick milkshake, isn't it? <laughs> and it is a milkshake, it's good, it's very good. But it's thick, okay, you, you got to work for it. Uh, but it's very, very good. Well, through here, of course, like every passage in the Bible... There's so much that we could see and dwell on and ask questions about, but I want us to focus in this study on this combining of the two natures. And it does start in verse 9, the first verse Mandy read for us, where it talks about how Jesus was made a little 
lower than the angels for a little while. The one who is better than angels was made a little lower than angels. And that's been the author's point. The author of Hebrews from chapter 1 up to this point is making the case that Jesus is better than angels. Uh, you can take the finest angel that there is and compare him to Jesus, and he fails in his glory compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. But here's the marvelous thing about the incarnation. The one who is objectively better than all angels, higher, more glorious, greater than, for a little while became lower than the angels. That's a lot of humility, isn't it? And he had to be made like those he died for in all things. Okay, we see that in, what verse was that? Um, did I say what verse it is? No, I didn't. Nuts, why didn't I do that? It's verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Now that's an interesting phrase too. We had to be made like them. Now notice, we don't have Jesus starting off as human and then becoming God. I've talked about this before in this class that sometimes you'll encounter people that say Jesus was just like the rest of us. He was born of a woman and then he was such a superstar in life that God made him another God or something like that. That is just not the perspective that any New Testament writer has. The perspective here is that he is God who was made a little lower than the angels, who was made like his brothers in all things. He was never made God. By definition, if one has made something, then he's not God, okay? because God is not made. But he had to be made like his brothers in all things, meaning those that he's helping. Verse 16, the descendants of Abraham, people who have true flesh and blood. And he was truly human, but without sin. And that's where the author goes in the last verse, verse 18. He was tempted in all things that he has suffered, but he, and he's able to come to the aid of those whom he has tempted. So for a cross-reference, jump on over to the end of chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. You get kind of the same idea here about Jesus' temptation, where it says, verse 14... Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he was... Made like his brothers in all things, he endured temptation, yet enduring this temptation was without sin. Now, can God be tempted? Here's a quiz for you. Can God be tempted? <coughs> can God be tempted? No. Yes, no. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I thought we were going to have a little more... What is it? Unanimity here. Uh, now I have to look up the verse that I want to share with you because I don't know the reference off the top of my head. Uh, what? Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Yes, that's very, very true. But can God be tempted? The Father? Jesus is. Are you talking about the Father? Can God be tempted? Okay, okay. That's what I thought it was. Let's turn over. Let's turn over to the book of James. Just over a page or two. Okay, James 1.13. Who wants to read that? 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Can God be tempted? No. Oh, now we have the unanimity I was looking for. Unanimity, I don't know how to say that word. Okay. God cannot, and notice it's like ability language, cannot. It doesn't just say will not, though that's true. It says cannot. So, how on earth was Jesus tempted? Because of the humanity aspect. There we go. He was tempted in the flesh, in his humanity. So this is where it gets really important when we talk about how these two natures work together. If uh, you remember last week, and for those of you who are here, you see your notes at the top, these heretical ways of explaining Christ's nature. What does Eutychianism say? Option one that we talked about. Hold on, we'll come back around. Write, write a note down so you don't forget it. We'll, we'll answer it. But I'm making a point here, Joe. I'm, I'm, I'm in a zone here. <laughs> okay. Eutychianism, what does it teach about the nature of Christ? One new nature. Yes. Okay, so this these circles, I'm going to draw three circles. Each one represents the person of Christ. Okay? So you've got in the person of Christ, deity. There it is. And then you have, in the person of Christ, humanity. And what you have is, instead of the two natures remaining separate as two natures, you have them blending together to make a new species, basically. That, like a paint that's dropped in a bucket of water, it all kind of blends together. And the water's not clear, the water's not as dense as the paint was on its own. It's this new thing. It's mixed together. And Christ has a mixed nature. Now you tell me, if this is the nature of Jesus Christ, how could he have been tempted? Because God cannot be tempted. And so if he's got this new thing going on, could he have truly been tempted? I don't think this could explain Hebrews. Where it says twice, Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, that Jesus was Okay? What, what about the next one? What's it called and what does it say? Up at the top of your sheet, on 19. Apollinarianism. What does it say? Fresh prior to human body. Okay. So what you have is a percentage of each. So you've got, I think probably what they would say, even though it's not going to be reflected here, is something like Jesus was 75% God and 25% human, something like that, okay? Because Apollinarianism would say that Jesus did not have a human mind or a human spirit. So he wasn't all the way human. Yeah, he had a body, he was a bag of bones, he had that, but he didn't really have a human mind. Or human will, or human spirit. So how could Jesus have been truly tempted if he didn't have a human will, or a human mind, or a human spirit? Because God cannot be tempted, right? Okay, last one, Nestorianism, what does that teach? Christ's natures are completely separate. Okay, so in the person of Christ, what you have with Nestorianism, and actually, they don't, they don't touch, I've got to keep them separate there. So you've got, he is God, and he is human. But they're totally separate and they don't touch. Now, Nestorianism could explain Hebrews too, but it has other problems with it, okay? But within the person of Christ, that they are like two different natures that don't occur simultaneously. 
But sometimes he is as God. Sometimes he is as human. He's never both simultaneously. That's what the story doesn't teach us. So that has other issues. Okay? But these two clearly can't explain Hebrews, how Jesus was tempted. Because to be tempted, Jesus had to be human. As he existed for all eternity in the glory of God, Satan could be allowed to come up and talk to him like in the book of Job. And Satan couldn't tempt him. It's unable, like just absolutely impossible for Satan to tempt Jesus while he's in celestial glory. But you put him in a body, give him a true human mind and a true human will and a true human spirit, put him in the wilderness and then bring Satan to him. Now you've got real temptation that can happen. And we'll talk through the nature of that temptation in this class. Did Jesus, was he tempted in that he wanted to sin, but he never did? Or, you know, we'll talk through all that. But for now, just latch on, latch on to this, that Jesus had to take on human form, true humanity, in order to be tempted. Because God cannot be tempted. And so when Jesus was tempted, it was in his humanity, not in his deity, that he was tempted. Okay? Joe. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, even though Jesus had de deity and humanity, and still does have deity and humanity existing simultaneously, not all of his experiences reflect both natures. Because he was still God. Yes. So, well, another good example. Maybe this one's easier for us to grasp. Jesus had to go to sleep every night, didn't he? Does God have to sleep? No, okay. So he's sleeping in his humanity, not in his deity. Not that his deity is, we're, we're not here, we're not saying that, you know, his godness, he shut off while he was asleep. We don't say that at all. Amazingly, he's still upholding the universe by his own power. But in his humanity, he was sleeping. And, and it's, well, it's the same thing in the temptation. As he's being tempted, he's being tempted in his humanity, not in his deity. Okay? Mandy. In Matthew 5, it talks, uh, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Mm -hmm. You can't fulfill righteousness if you're not tempted. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly an aspect of his and displaying his purity, yes, his holiness, is resisting sin. Mm -hmm. And you can't uh, resist sin as the perfect sacrifice without taking on flesh. Right? He had to incarnate for that to happen. Jesus possessed deity and humanity. The two natures remained true. They did not blend together or remain so separate as to make him a schizo here. Okay? So they didn't blend like this. And they didn't stay so separate where he was like, a, like an oscillating fan. Like sometimes he's here, he's God, and then sometimes he's here, he's human. And they weren't that separate. Okay? And then this, of course, diminishes the whole concept. And you, you think about, okay, well, how can we word this? It's very, very difficult to work this. And the early church had to wrestle with how they were going to articulate this because you had these errors popping up. Eutychianism, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, they're all named after guys and they had to be addressed because these guys had a following and they're using the Bible to teach this. And so the early church had some councils. They would get together and they'd say, okay, how are we going to articulate this? And they'd take a long time we're used to councils lasting a weekend. 
I, these were councils that lasted for quite a while. Uh, you really advance forward in church history, go all the way to, uh, oh, well, what is it, the uh, Synod of Dort, the Council of Dort, where, you know, the five points of Calvinism came out of that. Those guys met for like five years. Okay, I don't know how regular they were being, but they met for a long time. It just takes time to do good Bible study and to articulate things faithfully, all right? So, um, we'll get to that, we'll come back to that in a moment. But additionally, this means that Christ has an existence that is very unlike ours. If we think of him as an older brother in the flesh, or say that he was created in any sense, we lower the majesty of his being. Now, I may have overstated just a tad, where it says created in any sense. Uh, the language that we're getting in Hebrews, both in verse 9 of chapter 2, Hebrews 2, 9, and... 17, verses 9 and 17, it's, we get this language that he had to be made in the flesh. Okay? He had to be made like his brethren in all things, and he had to be made for a little while lower than the angels. Okay? So there was a sense, of course, where his body was created in the womb of Mary. But Jesus himself, as a person, the Son of God, was never created in any sense. And he's not merely an older brother. We get language in Hebrews 2 that talks about he's our brother, and he's our brother because he took on flesh. He's our brother in humanity, that sense. But if we think of him in, for example, the LDS conception, where Jesus is like the first one made by Heavenly Father, and then we're down the line, therefore he's our older brother. We've now tampered with the whole nature of things, and we've, we've switched religions altogether. We've gone in a different lane. And now we're talking about the Son of God as a person having a starting point. And not just his flesh being made in the womb of a virgin. But now we're talking about as a person, he had a beginning point just like us. He had the same mom and dad as us in eternity past. Or how they would even say eternity past. In the pre-mortal existence, pre-mortal state. Okay, so that is, that's not the path we go down. That's not where the Bible takes us. And so we just have to be really careful about how we word things. Because Jesus Christ is now, from this, from the point of his incarnation forward, forever truly God and truly man, and into eternity past, he's always existed in the form of God. Okay. Thoughts or questions on this before we get into uh, a little bit of review and then a look at how church history articulated this? Good, good, good. So again, these heretical options that I just explained up here, option one, Eutychianism, Christ has one nature, the human and the divine uh, blend. Option two, Christ acquired a human body, but not a human mind or spirit. Option three, which is Nestorianism, Christ's natures, natures are completely separate. In one body, he is a human person and a divine person. He's two persons in one person, basically. They don't allow for one person having simultaneously two natures. Okay? So each one of those is an error. And so if you're saying each one of those are an error, then you have to say, how on earth do we talk about this? How can I explain any of this to anybody? Because this, these seem like you know, decent ways to explain it. No, they're all out, so what do we do? Well, it takes lots of words. Lots and lots of words. There's just no getting around it. It's how it is. Because again, we're June bugs here trying to do quantum physics. Here we are with our calculators out saying, how can we do this? So we go to the Word of God and we say, what can we say? You see that? 
And that's only part one. It goes there too, okay? All right? So this is from an, an early church council where they were articulating these things. Combating false views, seeking to faithfully articulate what the Bible has to say. And so I've highlighted some phrases in here, and uh, we'll examine this and dwell on it for a little bit. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards to his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but, uh, but yet as regards to his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation. Of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of nature is being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same. <laughs> All right, wow, that's the Council of Chalcedon 451 AD. Takes words. There's no getting around it, okay? It's like... It's like, how do you explain to somebody how the internet works? Who here, can, who here knows how the internet works? <laughs> and how much more complicated is God becoming man? I'd say infinitely more complicated than how the internet works. So if we're going to try to explain these things, it's going to take some terminology here. Well, let me point out what I've highlighted. Here's a great phrase, and if you just get this phrase, and you stop at it, and you just, you're content with that, I think that's great. Truly God and truly man. That's just a great phrase to have. And I like that better than fully God and fully man. I think truly God, truly man, just gets to the heart of the whole issue. Okay? He is truly God and truly man. Now, if you want to go beyond that, if you want to get a little more detailed... It uses the soul and body language. And that, of course, is against this Apollinarianism idea. Let's see. Which ones work here? Apollinarianism, which says that he was basically, you know, part human, not truly human. This would reject true humanity because they said, well, no, he didn't have a human will, mind or spirit. Well, if you take those things away, then he's not truly man anymore, is he? And so... That says explicitly, reasonable soul and body. So not just body, but a soul, human soul. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead. So in deity, he is of one substance with the Father. Now this gets back to our Trinitarian language. He's not a creature. Okay, that's clear. But he's also not like deity light. He's not God 2.0. He's not anything like that. He is of one substance with the Father. Because we believe there are how many gods? One. And the Father is called God. The Son is called God. The Spirit is called God. But there's one God. 
And so the language that's being used here, substance, it's the word hypostasis, where we get the term hypostatic union. It's the Greek word, hypostasis. There is one substance of God, and it's a word that we just have to use because we're so limited by our language. There's one God, and Jesus, the Son of God, is of one substance with the Father as it regards his deity. But when it comes to his manhood, his humanity, he's of one substance with us. As we were just reading in Hebrews 2, he had to be made like us in all things. He took on true humanity. He was really like us. Except without what? Very good. Without sin. There is no sin nature in the person of Jesus Christ whatsoever. But you can have true humanity without sin, right? Adam and Eve before the fall, were they true humans? <coughs> they were true humans before the fall. And then after they sinned, were they still true humans? Yes. Have we all been affected by that? Yes. But Jesus is not affected by that. He's true, truly human, yet without sin. Okay? Like us in all respects, but apart from sin. Okay? So that's... Hopefully we're tracking with that. I think the second part here is where it gets a little more confusing. Here we go. <laughs> Take another sip of coffee. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> he is recognized in two natures. So when we talk about this hypostatic union business, we are talking about two distinct natures. Okay, so just focus on this error right here. The Eutychianism, option one. We do not mix divinity and humanity. And that's really what this is an offshoot of, Apollinarianism, where it's saying, yeah, he was you know, mostly God, but he was also a little human. That's still, that's blending the natures. They're just being clear that you know, his humanity was really diminished. He didn't have a mind, soul, or spirit, or will that was human. Eutychianism just says he became a new species and then blends the two together. And so he wasn't truly divine or truly human. He was a new thing. We don't say that. We don't say that. We believe the scriptures testify that he was truly divine and truly human at the same time without becoming a new thing. Right? Because he's like us in his humanity. That's the example Hebrews uses. Now Hebrews, if he was a new thing, Hebrews would have said, he wasn't like us. I mean, he was just like, you know, he was lower than the angels, but he was above us because he was a blend. He was some sort of transformer or something where he combined the two to blend up into a whole new species. That's not what Hebrews says. It says in his humanity, he was like us in all respects. And it goes on here to say specifically, without confusion, don't blend the two, don't stir them up together, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of nature is being in no way annulled by the union. So perhaps an argument that someone who takes one of these first two views would say is that, okay, well, if you believe that he has two natures without division or without separation, then um, that has to be a blend. Without division, without separation, well, it has to become a, a mixed up new species. Then they follow up and say, at the same time, the distinction is not annulled by the union. Just because they've come together, that doesn't mean that they're no longer distinct. They are forever joined in Jesus. They do come together. They will always be together, humanity and deity. Okay? 
They're not like independent from each other where sometimes he drops his humanity and he's just God. Sometimes he drops his deity and he's just human. They're always linked together in the person of Christ. Always joined together permanently now. But just because they're always joined together in this union, that doesn't say that he's a new thing, a new species. It's saying that they're linked, but they're still going to be distinct. Humanity and divinity are never going to blend together. It can't happen. There's a chasm between creator and creature, and that chasm cannot be crossed in the person of Jesus, yet they're forever linked. Okay? That he's God and he's man forever. Rather, let's articulate positively here, the characteristic of each nature is being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. And this is talking against Nestorianism now, this third option. This is saying two persons existing within Jesus. No, 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 not two persons, not a God person and a human person. No, he's one person with two natures. Not parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same. Okay? So this is a bad way of articulating it, where you basically got God version of Jesus and human version of Jesus, and he's not these two simultaneously. Sometimes he's one, sometimes he's the other. No, nope, he's both at the same time. So it takes lots of words to articulate this. Joe. It's getting more confusing. Yeah, well, it'll, it'll get more confusing before it gets clear. Yeah. And I won't promise it'll ever get clear, but go ahead. When Jesus goes back to heaven, is he still living? Yes, he retains his humanity permanently. Yeah. When he returns, like in, uh, if you read the prophecy of Zechariah, the end of the book of Zechariah, it says that when the Lord returns, his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in two. Those are going to be true human feet standing on that true mountain. Yeah. He retains his body. He's a rider on a white horse, Revelation says. He's coming back with a true body. Sarah. So do you think people in history who believe these other three options weren't saved then since they didn't understand the nature? Well, I mean, obviously this is really difficult for us to articulate. And I'm not qualified to exalt or condemn anybody. Right. Praise God for that. Uh, now there are some who hold to false views because they haven't been introduced to biblical truth. I mean, some there are some who, who have a lot of things right and then hold to some false views because they've never interacted with a biblically faithful articulation of doctrine. And for those people, they may be saved. Many of them may be saved. But for those who hold to a false view and then encounter one of God's people who is teaching them, rebuking, correcting from the Word of God, as 2 Timothy 3 says we can do from the Word of God, and that person says, no, I'm going to keep believing my false doctrine, now we've got a problem. Now we're not going to treat that person like a believer, but treat that person as an unbeliever. Only God knows that person's heart. But I'm not going to save that person. I'm not going to give that person the assurance of salvation because that person is rejecting the Bible. Yeah. Joe. I'm sorry. That's okay. If Jesus is still human. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What is the purpose of that? Of him being in heaven? No, him still being human. Well, um, Think of the alternative. Okay? If he no longer had a body, what would that say about the resurrection? 
That wasn't a real resurrection. He just came out as a ghost. What would it say about our resurrection? That we would know we wouldn't exist for eternity with a, a body that was made whole. But that we would be ghosts. Okay? So we see our Savior, uh, as Thomas said, when he interacted with the risen Lord, my Lord and my God. And we know that we will be like him in our resurrection. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? It's good stuff. Okay. What difference does it make? We've been talking about that already, haven't we? What difference does it make? Oh, that's where I ended. I wanted you to answer that. Huh? Well, if you have any other thoughts about what difference it makes, feel free to jump in. I'm going to pull up that other PowerPoint. Let's see. That's funny. I ended it that way. Didn't review that part of the slide, apparently. I wasn't ready for that. Well, we will be going to um, page 20 now. And we will just get started. This will be at least two weeks, maybe three, talking about the central work of Christ. You can see your headings here in pages 20 and 21. We have propitiation, resurrection, ascension. Those are the three things we're going to talk about for the next probably three weeks. And uh, really, really important that we grasp this because this is central to our salvation, isn't it? If Jesus didn't come and die, we're in bad shape. If he didn't rise from the dead, we're in bad shape. If he didn't ascend to heaven, we're in bad shape. You've got to have all three, all right? And so we'll start this lesson, uh, Death Couldn't Hold. The climax of Jesus' ministry was his atoning death and physical resurrection leading to his ascension. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's a great verse, isn't it? That's a good memory verse. It was fitting that we should have such a high priest with all these adjectives. Holy, innocent, unstained, that's good. And now, of course, he's exalted above the heavens. All right, propitiation. Interesting word. It's a very, very interesting word. Not a word that uh, we use very often. The word that we use much more frequently is the word atonement. But I'll get into here in a little bit why I like the word propitiation better. Uh, one of the reasons, probably I guess the main reason being, that's the New Testament word. That's the word we have in the Bible for what Jesus did. Do you know how many times the word atonement shows up in the New Testament? It depends on your translation, but it'll max out at two. And you probably wouldn't think that just because we use that word so often, especially around here. The word propitiation, on the other hand, comes up five, six times. Talking about what Jesus did on the cross. He provided a propitiation. Now, atonement is a fine word. I'm not here to like beat it over the head and say, don't ever touch that word again. And it carries key elements of truth of what Jesus did. If you were to go back to Leviticus 16, you'll read about the Day of Atonement, 
which Jews now call Yom Kippur. That's the holiday. And every year in Israel, annually, they participated in the Day of Atonement. That's how we translate from the Hebrew to the English. And that foreshadowed, of course, what Jesus was going to do on the cross. So it's all good. But in the Greek New Testament, we have the word propitiation. And this is a better word to use, especially in our context. And here's your first fill in the blank here. It means covering or satisfactory payment. And it always refers to Jesus' death. Always refers to his death. So it means covering or you could say satisfactory payment. In fact, we actually blend those two terms in our day, don't we? When we say, I've got you covered. If someone's paying something for you, I've got you covered. So you can think of that as uh, a very microcosm type illustration of what propitiation is. That we are covered and paid for by Jesus' death. Now, <clears throat> I say uh, that in the Greek New Testament we have the word propitiation. That's the way... So I think that word comes up either six times or eight times. And that's the way it should be translated every time, really, is propitiation. It's the Greek word halasmos. Okay, it's not the word for atonement. In the New American Standard Bible, the translation we primarily use here, I think it's translated propitiation every time. I don't think the word atonement is in the New Testament at all in the New American Standard Bible. Okay, so it's just really interesting that that's the case. And I find it to be very helpful... In evangelism. Because I say here, it's a better word to use, propitiation, especially in our context. What does the word atonement mean here in our context in Payson, Utah? What does atonement mean? I actually wonder sometimes if the people using it know what it means. <laughs> What's common? for what, what do people say about the atonement around here? Are those people around here? Yeah. yeah. What do they say? Where do they, where, where does the, the LDS church teach that atonement was made? Oh, in the garden. In the garden. Yeah. When he prayed. Uh-huh. Yeah. He, uh, he had some drops of blood in the garden, and that's where atonement was made. And then he, of course, went on to die on the cross and rise again. And they actually refer to that whole sequence of events as the atonement. They, when they talk about the atonement of Christ, they see garden, cross, and resurrection as the atonement. But they say sins were paid for in the garden. Now, here's a big problem. The word propitiation refers to Jesus' death in the New Testament. It refers to the death of Christ. Not to any time he happened to bleed. He was a carpenter. You think he ever bled? Before the garden? I'd say so. Yeah. Uh, he was working in a fallen world, wasn't he? And he suffered the effects of a fallen world. Okay. And so it's not just any time Jesus had a drop of blood was that atonement or propitiation. Propitiation is always in reference to Jesus' death. And furthermore... You'll have the language, the terminology around here of you have to apply the atonement. That's what they'll say to people. The LDS church will say, apply the atonement. Now, I don't really know what that means. I think it means something different to everyone who says it. 
<laughs> yeah, but how does that work? I, I just do not know. I think what that means is uh, do your religious works. I think it's probably what that means. But that's just not the language that the New Testament employs when talking about the propitiation. That's just you don't ever see a command to apply the propitiation. What you see is believing in the work of Christ, which includes the propitiation. That's, you know, again, the climax of his work was dying on the cross in our place for our sins. But applying that to our lives, I just don't really know what that means so often. So what I find interesting when I'm in an evangelistic conversation is uh, I'll say, you know, have you ever heard of the word propitiation? Very, very few have. Which is ironic because it's in the New Testament more than atonement. I think the King James Version has the word atonement once or twice. And that's propitiation like four times. So well, let's, let's look at this word. And just gets them off of the idea of how they use it. So we can focus on how the Bible uses the term. Okay? Payment was to be made for sin. God is both the judge and he's the one offended by our sin. So he's the judge of sin and he's the one who's offended by our sin. Therefore, he requires of sinners both punishment and restitution. And Jesus did not need to make propitiation for himself. The nature of this propitiation is substitutionary. So you've got God who is judging sin, condemning sin as a good judge. That's what a good, holy judge does, is condemn all crimes, including every thought crime that you've had, every heart crime that you've had, every time you've sinned against God, both in thought, word, and deed. And he's also the one offended. You're sinning against God in those moments. And we see that throughout the Bible where people say, I didn't just sin against, you know, fill in the blank of somebody's name, but I've sinned against God. He's the offended one for every one of our sins. And so as both the perfect judge and the one who's offended, he requires of sinners both punishment and restitution. That they're, they're, they have to be punished and God must be paid, repaid in some way. Well, Jesus comes, of course, to do what we could not do. We cannot punish ourselves. We can't get ourselves out of this condemnation. We cannot make appropriate restitution. There's nothing that you can do for that. Uh, he provided, of course, like I mentioned, the Day of Atonement in Israel, where year after year they could slaughter a couple of goats and a bull, and through that he looked over, passed over their sins for a time. But that blood can never fully take away sins. That's what Hebrew says. So Jesus came as the greatest sacrifice. And it was a substitutionary sacrifice. He's not taking on punishment for himself. He's not making restitution for himself. He's doing this in our place for our sins. His propitiation isn't something done on behalf of himself. It's something that's done on behalf of you. Okay? So we just have to get our bearings here. This is basic stuff. But you've got to get your bearings as to what's going on. Jesus didn't come to offer a sacrifice of himself for himself. He's the only human who's ever existed who didn't need a sacrifice. And yet he became a sacrifice for everybody else. That's the idea of what Jesus was doing in his death. Thoughts on that? Or questions? The humility of Jesus Christ is just completely overwhelming. Yeah, it should be. He's the glory of God. Yes. And he comes here and he washes people's feet. Yes. Something that none of us, just beyond our capability to think of doing that. Yeah. 
And that's a great thing to point out when you know, you're talking to someone and explaining how God does all things for His own glory. God is the only one deserving of all glory, the only one worthy of all praise and honor forever and ever. And He's actually doing all things in the universe to bring glory to Himself. And a person will say, that's so egotistical of God. I mean, which is what? This is just so self-centered and selfish here. Point that person to the person of Jesus. The person you're talking to, point him or her to Jesus Christ, who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, Philippians 2 says. And that he would suffer and die affliction beyond what we can comprehend, even though he didn't need to, didn't have to. He could have justly blown up the world. And yet he entered the world and was beaten beyond recognition and, was, and just suffered in the flesh, unimaginably so, for you. Now, does that sound like an egotistical God? No, it does not. So you have to help people see the humility of God in the person of Jesus. A couple more thoughts to finish this out here. <clears throat> The wrath that Jesus endured in the propitiation is God's wrath. The full weight of God's anger for all sin was placed on God the Son. Oh, boy. Oh, meditate on that. Summary here for a while. That's remarkable stuff. And the result of an applied propitiation is divine favor. Wrath is removed and favor takes its place. Okay? So you can write here on the third line, Jesus endured God's wrath or anger in his death, resulting in divine favor for those to whom the propitiation is applied. He endured God's wrath in his death, resulting in divine favor for those to whom the propitiation is applied. And if you missed the middle blank, it's substitutionary. The nature of this propitiation is substitutionary. Okay. Wow. Well, next week, as you see, we're going to look at four main passages. We'll dwell on this some more and consider the nature of the propitiation and its impact on those of us who believe, okay? Very good. Well, why don't I pray for us and then we'll head into the corporate worship service where we are taking communion today, where we remember the propitiation of Jesus Christ in particular. It's something we do as a memorial to put our minds there, all right?